I think it's easy for us to see what's going on with the climate crisis, what's going on with police violence, what's going on in the prison systems, the dropout rates in the high schools, all of these issues that we're facing, and, and, and just look the other way and say, that's none of my business. But a commitment to nonviolence, as I understand it, it's about when you see violence and injustice in your community, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to engage in the violence and injustice and contribute to the transformation and contribute to the healing of, 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 of those dynamics? We are Irresistible. A community of practice in collective healing and social change. Because our commitment to justice and to our own lives is compelling, joyful, and irresistible. Together, we celebrate the many traditions of movement leaders, cultural workers, and spiritual teachers who remind us to embody the liberation we are pursuing and who show us that our movements for justice can and must be expansive, vibrant, and alive. Because we are so much more than resistance. We are irresistible. Hey everybody, it's Kate Werning, and welcome to Irresistible. We are a podcast formerly known as Healing Justice. We have only been called Irresistible for a few weeks now, and so if you're still growing into this new name with us, I highly recommend this episode from a few weeks ago called Becoming Irresistible. It holds really important information about the many legacies that led us to this name, the traditions that we come from, and our aspirations of what we are becoming here. So make sure you check it out back in the feed, Becoming Irresistible. So what we do here is each week we share with you a conversation or an audio practice to support your healing and your commitment to social justice. And this episode is publishing on March 31st, 2020, which is an intense time here in the United States. We are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. There is a lot happening, and it's a moment for rapid response and mutual aid, and things are moving very quickly. And so you might wonder, what about this time makes any sense to share a reflection that is about really, really long and deep work, like traditions of nonviolence, restorative justice work, reconciliation, and building beloved community. And that's exactly what this conversation is about, talking with Kazu Haga, who is the author of a new book that came out in January called Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm, in conversation with his friend and my friend, Carlos Saavedra of the INI Institute. Some of you know Carlos from episode 15, way back in the podcast about decolonization and the long view of history. So it feels like a really important time to release this episode and to initiate a round of study, and as is our tradition here in Irresistible Book Club, because as much as this is a moment of rapid response, it is also a moment of deep preparation. It is a moment of preparation for the ways in which our bodies, for some of us, our communities, our financial situations, our jobs, our culture, our digital lives, our political realities, and the ways that our country will restructure or refuse to restructure itself um, as we move through and beyond this crisis uh, are all revealing themselves, right? It is a moment for us to prepare ourselves for those kinds of changes that we can be as aware and as clear and as trained as we can be to shape those outcomes on the individual level, on the household level, and on the big, big collective level. And so we hope that you will join us in an invitation to um, continue to be in rapid response, continue to be in mutual aid support, and at the same time to preserve some time for yourself to drop beneath that kind of rapid response pace and dig into some rigorous study and listening and reframing and deepening into spiritual practice that actually prepares us to move well when we're moving quickly. 
Um, as Marsha Lee has said to me before, who is from Healing by Choice in Detroit, um, featured on episode 18 of the podcast, Marsha has said, we have to learn to move quickly, slowly. And reading this book and engaging in this conversation with Kazu and Carlos at this time is about resourcing our moving quickly by learning more deeply about how to move slowly. So we hope you'll pick up a copy of the book. If you hear them talking about it and you're getting really excited, uh, you can always check out the details at irresistible.org slash book club to learn more about joining us in conversation and learning. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And for now, let's dive into the conversation. This was recorded in December of 2019, and the first voice that you'll hear belongs to Carlos. So here is Carlos in conversation with Kazu. Welcome, everybody. My name is Carlos Saavedra. I am very, very excited to be hosting today's podcast, but I'm even more and more excited uh, to be with my brother Kazu here today and get a chance to talk to him every time that I talk to him. I'm always taking notes. How are you doing, Brother Kasu? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, man. Excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, me too, my brother. Me too. Well, Kasu, I know we've known each other now for many, many years, and I'm excited that we're having this chance to talk. But maybe just for the people that, that don't know you, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I was born in Japan. And I have a pretty unique upbringing in some ways. I was born into a pretty powerful family in Japan. My great-grandfather on my mother's side started a women's university, which is now one of the larger women's universities in Japan. And so I was born into a family with relative amounts of power and wealth. Uh, and when I was seven years old, my family had a falling out. And so my mother was actually disowned from her side of the family and we ended up moving to the US. And it's a very complicated story that I, in, in a lot of ways I'm still trying to unpack. Uh, but that's how we ended up in the States when I was seven years old. Because my parents at the time didn't tell us everything that was going on because we were still young. They were kind of trying to protect us from all of the, the family struggles and challenges. And when I was 11 years old, my father passed away. And mm. life kind of fell apart very quickly from that moment. And we ended up, uh, my mother ended up remarrying into a pretty abusive relationship um, with a lot of chaos and conflict in our home. And so that led to me turning to drugs and drinking at a pretty young age to kind of escape from everything that I was seeing at the time, being pretty young and not knowing how to handle just how much my life had shifted. And everything kind of shifted again for me when I was 17 years old. At that point in my life, if I had met a cult leader, I would have joined a cult. If I had met a military recruiter, I would have gone off to war. Mm. It could have been any number of communities or things that had given me an opportunity to have a sense of community and purpose, and I would have joined. And luckily, it was a group of Buddhist monastics um, from a Japanese Buddhist order called Nipponza Myohoji that I had met. And they really kind of took me under their wing. And I ended up spending a year and a half living with them and studying about Buddhism, studying about nonviolence and social change. Mm. Okay, so you said you were 17 when this happened? Yeah. 17. It's a, it's a very interesting age where anything could happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I had um, actually dropped out of high school when I was 15 years old. So for about two years, I was doing nothing productive with my life. And so in some ways, I feel grateful for that because I was in this place where I didn't have any responsibilities. I wasn't going to school. I wasn't working. And so when this opportunity came up to, to spend some time with these monastics, I was able to just leave, right, and, and spend a year and a half living with these people. And so I consider that to, to have been my college education, essentially, you know, so that kind of led me to this life in social change work and in nonviolence. And it's been a it's been a quite a journey. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I got into everything. And here I am 20 some odd years later talking to you. Wow. Kasu, I'm, I'm so excited to hear a little bit about your journey there. And uh, something that I wanted to add to this piece here is like a zoom out. You said you've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, people that don't know in, in the podcast, but I also run another training institute called the Aini Institute. And you know, you are also a fellow trainer. We train for a living. We're 
you know, in the world of trainings, in the world of education, where we get to see a lot of different curriculums, a lot of different experiences. I think it was four years ago or five years ago that uh, Rachel Mu and other people uh, brought you here to Boston and you did a two-day nonviolence training. I don't know if you remember because I know you've done like five million of those. Oh, I remember you know? that well. I remember, I think it was on the first day uh, when uh, you were talking, and but I was very amazed that essentially what you were proposing in this two-day introductory is that we needed to be scientists of conflict, that actually so much of what we call change or social change has to do with conflict, with two opposite realities, with uh, maybe tensions that are uh, between people, between organizations, between nations. And so much of our development has to be to understand conflict in a different way. Maybe can you tell us a little bit more about that and what do you mean about being a scientist of conflict? Yeah, I guess I'll just share one story that I wrote about in my book um, that is about what nonviolence is and what nonviolence isn't. Uh, because I, I, I think one of the reasons why a, a lot of people don't engage in the world of nonviolence is because there's so many misunderstandings about it. In Kingian nonviolence, we make a distinction between nonviolence spelt with a hyphen and nonviolence spelt without the hyphen. And we say that when you put the hyphen in the word nonviolence, it drastically shifts the meaning of the word because non-hyphen violence, all that means is something is not violent. Something is the absence of violence. And I think the biggest misunderstanding of the idea of nonviolence is that it simply means to not be violent, right? That as long as I'm not being violent, then I'm practicing nonviolence. And it's a very dangerous misunderstanding. And the story that I write about in my book and I tell all the time in my workshops is several years ago, I was uh, taking a nap in my apartment and I was woken up by a commotion outside of my house. And I live in a neighborhood where people screaming at each other, unfortunately, is a very normalized thing. It happens almost every day. So I was just trying to go back to sleep. But this fight kept escalating and escalating. And it kept getting louder and it kept getting louder. And I finally decided to get up out of my bed and look down the window. And there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat. And she was screaming for help. So I jumped up out of my bed. I ran downstairs. I opened up the gate. And by this point, they had gone across the, uh, the, the street to the other corner. So I ran across the street and I broke up this fight. And by the time I got down there, about 15 of my neighbors had heard the commotion and they had all come outside and they were just standing around watching this woman get beat with not doing anything to help. And I always say that all of my neighbors who were just standing around watching this woman get beat were practicing non-hyphen violence, right? In the sense that they weren't explicitly being violent. They weren't the ones throwing the punches and the cakes. They were just standing around being innocent bystanders. And so you see how big of a difference that hyphen can make when we understand nonviolence simply as not being violent. I think it's easy for us to see what's going on with the climate crisis, what's going on with police violence, what's going on in the prison systems, the dropout rates in the high schools, all of these issues that we're facing and, and, and just look the other way and say, that's none of my business. That would be practicing non-hyphen violence. But a commitment to nonviolence, as I understand it, is it's not about what not to do. It's about when you see violence and injustice in your community, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to engage in the violence and injustice and contribute to the transformation of what's happening? And so I think if there's one thing that I want people to take away from this podcast, from my book is that nonviolence is, is not about what not to do, right? It's about learning how to engage with conflict, with engage in violence, engage in, in injustice, and contribute to the transformation and contribute to the healing of, 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 of those dynamics. So I should back up a little bit and explain that most of my work for the past 10 years has been in kind of spreading the teachings of a philosophy called Kingian Nonviolence Conflict Reconciliation. And it's a teaching that was developed out of the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King and a lot of the organizing strategies of the civil rights movement by some of the people who were closest with Dr. King. And when I first took the Kingian nonviolence training, this was about 10 years into kind of my exploration with social change work and movement building work. That two-day training just completely shifted my perspective on what the word nonviolence means and how I engage with conflict in my own life and how I engage with conflict in movement building work. And one of the things that really blew me away in that two-day training is that there's actually like a science and a structure to conflict, 
right? When we're in conflict in in our own lives, sometimes we get just so overwhelmed with emotions, and 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 uh, we kind of just move into it without any understanding of the dynamics of how conflict works, and we don't really think about it analytically. One of the things that we teach in King and Nonviolence is that things like yelling and arguing and fighting, those things aren't signs of conflict, but they're signs that a conflict has been mismanaged, right? And so that if we can learn to understand the dynamics of human conflict a little bit better, we can learn to engage in conflict in healthier ways so that instead of the conflict escalating and ending up in fighting and arguing and yelling, that just as likely an outcome to conflict is healing and reconciliation and lessons learned and strengthened relationships. So a lot of the work of nonviolence, like I consider it to be the martial art of engaging in conflict, right? How do we learn to engage in conflict at a personal, interpersonal to systemic levels in ways that give us the the best likelihood of ending up in healing and reconciliation? Kaswin, you've been doing now nonviolence work for how long? I guess it depends on on what you mean by the word nonviolence, right? So I was introduced to nonviolence initially by the monks and nuns of Nipponza Myohoji. And for them, nonviolence was a deeply spiritual practice. And when I came out of the monastery, I got involved in um, the a lot of social change movements, the anti-globalization movement of the late 1990s, which is also where I met uh, some of our mutual friends, Paul Engler and, and, and that whole community. And so I learned about more of the civil resistance and movement building and organizing side of nonviolence. And in a lot of ways, it was the introduction to the Kingian theory that allowed me to really find a place where the the spiritual side and the moral and ethical questions that is being asked in the principal side of nonviolence came together with the strategic and organizing and systematic side of, of nonviolence. And to me, that's when the word nonviolence became something very real. And so I feel like I've been engaged in that side of nonviolence for about 10 years since I took that first training in 2008. So about 10 years understanding it, really going deep. 10 years in trying to understand it in, in, in ever-deepening <laughs> ways. Right? Kasu, uh, you and I know that right now, probably somewhere across the world, there is a group of seven or eight people that are doing a meeting, and they're fighting around whether they should choose nonviolence or should choose violence as a method of action, maybe in a particular tactic, whether they're doing civil disobedience uh, or somebody saying we do nonviolence and somebody else says to you, well, nonviolence is this or it's that, you know, what do you feel is some of the biggest misunderstandings that people have when they discuss this dichotomy of nonviolence and violence? Yeah, there's so much to say about that. Um, I think that the first thing that I'll say is this is why I love using the martial arts analogy in that no one's ever gone to even a two-day or week-long or month-long karate seminar and then walked away feeling like they understood karate and stopped training in it and stopped engaging with the practice of it. And I feel like nonviolence is similar. It's, it's not a thing to become. Um, I always talk about how, you know, if you have a, a yoga practice or a meditation practice, you never become yoga. You never become meditation. They're, they're not things to become. They're a practice and a skill set and a worldview that we're constantly trying to deepen in and get better and better at the practice. And so I view nonviolence as the same way. It's not a thing to become, and therefore it's not a thing that you can understand even after 10 years of practice. It's just a constant thing that you engage with. The one thing that I really want to emphasize, though, is that in nonviolence, you know, no matter how small or how large the conflict is, the end goal is reconciliation. And you know, I, I do a lot of work in prisons, and one of our incarcerated trainers that we work with in Soledad Prison, he once told me that resolving a conflict is about fixing issues, and reconciling a conflict is about repairing relationships. And so in nonviolence, regardless of what the issue is, and, and understanding that oftentimes you have to fix the issue in order to repair the relationship, but our end goal is the healing of relationships and the strengthening of relationships. You have to understand that violence can never repair relationships, right? And violence can never get us one step closer to beloved community. And so I think oftentimes the the the, the dichotomy of like violence or nonviolence is is actually not how I see things. Uh, to me, the work of nonviolence can actually bring about a deeper level of change that violence just can't. And it doesn't mean that violence is a bad thing. It just means that nonviolence has the ability to heal relationships in a way that violence can't. So even if you have to use violence to keep you or your community alive, what are we doing on the other side of that to heal those relationships? I love what you're saying, Kasu, because 
for the people that don't know from the podcast, Kasu and I are both obsessed with food. And we also <laughs> try to live a life of simplicity, meaning that we don't try to accumulate too much money or resources in the work that we do. But Kasu and I share that the one thing that we will probably spend a lot of money with is on food, right? Always, always. <laughs> always. <laughs> and if you ever want to have a good meal, and you should really hang out with Kasu. He knows what to order. He has a way with menus. Uh, but the piece that I want to say about this is that restaurants are one of the businesses that are some of the hardest to maintain just because of the the level of rigor that it takes to run a restaurant. There's competitions, there's Michelin stars for chefs, for people that are, you know, in the craft of cooking, there's different cooking traditions, you know, yet in the work of social change, it feels like we don't have the same rigor around some of the things that we need to do. Like we don't have our Michelin stars, you know, in in nonviolence, our Michelin stars in solving conflicts, our Michelin stars in community organizing. Uh, but yet we need those things, right? And, and I was so amazed uh, that you built East Point uh, Academy as a way to be, begin to create a craft. Can you tell people just a little more about your organization and the mission, Kasu, and how that works? Yeah, so I guess it's about six years ago now, I started an organization called the East Point Peace Academy, and it's a play on words of the Military Academy at West Point, right? And that regardless of the background that you come from, if you go to war, you have to go through, at least in the US military, a six-month boot camp, right? To study war and to practice engaging in violence. And I think social justice work, peace work, it, it, it's the same thing. We have to engage in the practice of it. We have to be trained. Like social change isn't something that happens overnight. And Carlos, I love the way that you talk about organizing and movement building as a craft, right? And one of the most important mentors that I have in my life and teachers that I have in my life is a guy named Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who's the co-author of the Kingian Nonviolence Curriculum and is someone who worked very closely with Dr. Martin Luther King. And Dr. Lafayette got his start in the Nashville uh, chapter of the lunch counter sit movement. And if anyone knows the history of the lunch counter sit movement, they know that it's a movement that had chapters in hundreds and hundreds of locations throughout the South. And yet for some reason out of the Nashville chapter of the lunch counter sit movement came Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who would go on to become the national coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, came Diane Nash, James Bevel, C.T. Vivian, John Lewis, all of these people who went on to become national leaders and some of the like the backbone of the U.S. civil rights movement. And when historians look back and, and try to understand why the Nashville chapter of a movement that had hundreds of chapters cultivated so many people that went on to become national leaders, they all agree that the one thing that was different in Nashville was that the leaders in Nashville went through a nonviolence training by, led by Reverend James Lawson that lasted almost six months before they were allowed to even do their first protest, right? And so it was that commitment to the depth of training that allowed them to become national leaders and, and allowed that Nashville campaign to become one of the most successful campaigns within the, the lunch counter center movement. And so the East Point Peace Academy as an organization looks at training very seriously, that if we're going to try to create a peaceful culture in a, in a society where violence is accepted as the norm, that we're really going to have to train ourselves in it at least as much as the military invests in training for war. So that's the the, the idea of the East Point Peace Academy. Kasun, a lot of what I'm getting from you is from from where you put your feet in, where where you are working every day, and you're working the prisons and 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 the work that where most people would say, well, okay, you know, this guy does you know trainings on nonviolence, you know, okay, that's fine, we can talk about nonviolence, but really in a place where there's so much violence, particularly state violence, interpersonal violence, and then having transformations there, can you talk a little bit about your work in the prisons? Yeah, so a lot of the work that we do as an organization, probably over half, is with incarcerated communities. We have teams of nonviolence trainers in several different institutions that are going on to teach other incarcerated people about nonviolence. And, you know, I think that if we're really going to actually talk about peace and nonviolence and the impact of harm and violence, then it's a movement that has to have leadership from those that have most directly been impacted by violence on many levels. And I found that, you know, going into these institutions, into the prisons and, and talking to these men, mostly men that we work with, that they are some of the most committed peacemakers that I have ever met in my life. Because more than anyone, they understand the impact of violence. And they know what their communities need more than anybody. 
And so it, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to go into these institutions every day and work with the greatest peacemakers I've ever met. And they are the people who have both experienced some of the greatest harms that, that one can, can live through and also have perpetuated some of the greatest harms that one can perpetuate. And, you know, the, the working with these people who have, who have gone through those experiences and come out the other end as some of the most dedicated peacemakers I've ever known just renews my faith in humanity every day, you know, in, in a time that we're living in right now where I feel like it's so easy to lose faith in humanity, to be able to witness that transformation, to be able to work with these people is, is really an honor and a privilege. As an organization, we've reached well over we're probably 2,000 incarcerated people. Um, and it's, it's really the work of some of our incarcerated trainers that are doing incredible work in institutions where there's wars going on between gangs and, and trying to hold the peace in, in, in that kind of environment. Um, and also want to give a shout out to, I'm also a core member of the Ahimsa Collective, um, which does restorative justice work in, in several uh, institutions, as well as what are called VODs, Victim Offender Dialogues, um, bringing incarcerated people together with the survivors of their crime and doing healing dialogues with, with those people. And so it's, you know, because of my relationship with the Ahimsa Collective and other organizations like Barrios Unidos, who have really kind of blazed the trail in, in doing programming work in prisons that I'm able to do this work. Wow. I mean, to do the vision of nonviolence, we definitely need to have a whole different orientation around the kind of education, the kind of training, the kind of preparation, the kind of resources that we need to have the kind of resiliency to conflict that you're talking about, Kasu. Yeah. You know, I've been talking a lot about um, some of the victim offender dialogues, the VODs that I've been facilitating through the work of the Ahimsa Collective. And, you know, I've been part of dialogues between moms and the men that murdered their son and survivors of sexual violence and people who've perpetuated sexual harm. And just being able to witness the depth of healing that happens in those dialogues just gives me a lot of faith about the the level of healing that we are capable of as a species, as human beings. And in a lot of the movement work that I do, just trying to extrapolate that to like, if healing is possible, if that depth of healing is possible on an interpersonal level, then that depth of healing, I believe is, is, is possible on larger social global scales. And so a lot of the, the, the kind of movement building work that I, that I'm involved in is, is really about imagining, you know, what could social justice movements look like if we see ourselves as doing the same thing that I'm, I'm doing when I go into the prisons and doing this kind of healing work. Like resistance work should be about the same thing, just happening in public at scale, right? Like we are resisting so that we can heal relationships between communities, relationships between ourselves and the earth. Um, and if we're not working on on bringing healing to our society, I'm actually, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I, I don't know what we're trying to do. Like if we're not trying to heal relationships, then I don't know what we're trying to do. And so even in, in political resistance work, um, that's the, the, the kind of spirit and the energy that I want to try to bring. Hey, everybody, this is Kate. Just dropping in with an announcement about book club. If you're enjoying listening to Carlos and Kazu talk about nonviolence and reconciliation and all of the reframes that they're deepening into, I am enjoying so much reading Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm, which is Kazu's new book. I'm going to read you just a little segment here that I think is amazing. He says, Nonviolence is a worldview that speaks to the impact of violence, harm, oppression, and injustice on the human condition. It is about the dynamics of conflict and how to transform it. It is about an unwavering faith in the goodness of people and an undying commitment to healing ourselves and society. It is about stripping away the layers of trauma and separation and remembering the core of who we are. It is about coming home. So if you want to read that book with us, check out the details at irresistible.org slash book club. When you join as a member, the funds that you contribute help us to create this weekly free resource and free spaces like our virtual care circles um, that we do online and uh, support this important work to go forward. It also gives you access to 
a map of all of our book club members around the country and the world and ways to reach out to one another to organize conversation with each other. It gives you access to a discussion guide that you can use to have in these times household level or digital conversations with others about the book as you read and also a live conversation with Kazu, the author, that's going to take place in two months. So um, we hope that you'll join us. And also we recommend that you order the book directly from Parallax Press. Parallax Press is the nonprofit publishing division of the Plum Village Community of Engaged Buddhism, which was founded by Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, They have a wonderful program where when you buy a book from them, they send a book to someone who is incarcerated. And you can buy the book at parallax.org, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X.org. And you can enter the code PODCAST for 15% off the book. Also, if you are in book club, you'll get a special code when you join to order the book for 30% off. Some other titles that they recommend along with this book are How to Fight by Thich Nhat Hanh. And frankly, during this moment of crisis and trying to move quickly, slowly in this time, uh, a lot of the engaged Buddhism selections at Parallax are really good reads for right now. So we hope you'll join us. If you missed a lot of that, just head to irresistible.org slash book club and it's all there for you. And let's dive back into conversation with Carlos and Kazu. So for the people from the podcast, uh, we at INI did a training a couple of years ago called The Longview, which is about essentially doing about 10,000 years of history in like six days. And Casu was part of the experience where we go and talked about, you know, essentially how we broke reciprocity on this world. And, you know, a lot of the indigenous wisdom, the ancestral wisdom uh, that we got from all these years uh, on history. And one of the elders that we talked about was about the Mayan bees. I don't know if you remember this, Casu. Oh, yeah. And... And 10 days ago, I was in Guatemala meeting him for the first time with Jorge. Uh, And we went to meet with him. And, you know, he had to leave Guatemala when he was very young after after college because out of his 16 friends that were part of the the student movement, uh, only four remained. Everyone else got disappeared by the government. And he was telling me about what he felt was the experience of socialism, 21st century socialism in Latin America. And he was saying, we try to decolonize the state, but how can we decolonize the state if we couldn't decolonize education? And if we couldn't decolonize education, how could it decolonize people's identity? So he says the greatest lesson is that we must decolonize education if we are to decolonize the state in future revolutions, you know? And uh, what inspires me about what you're saying around the kind of work of healing, of repairing relationships, of training and nonviolence, the rigor, the martial arts, is so much is going to take to do that. And 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 I wanted to ask you just in a metaphorical question, maybe, you know, I don't know which presidential candidate will win, hopefully, from the Democratic side, but if, if one of those candidates will call you, Kasu, and appoint you to be, uh, you know, a special department of education around nonviolence or reconciliation, what would be the curriculum that you would put for K through 12 or to many of our educational institutions across the country? So first of all, I want to say one thing about the long view, which is that I think you introduced the long view to us as, okay, we're going to go back 10,000 years in human history to understand the story of domination. And when we got there, you took us back 4.2 billion years to the history of life on Earth and just mapped the entire lineage and legacy of, of life and the evolution of life to really understand where we are. And, and, and that really just changed my framework of how I look at history and, and our relationship to history. And so that was a, a mind-blowing week that we spent together. But my, my gut reaction is I feel like if the president called me and, and asked me to play a role like that, I would say no. Um, mm. I have a, a a friend who does restorative justice work in, in uh, schools, in high schools. And I remember having a conversation with him once and he was just expressing his frustration of trying to just instill a different culture within such a large institution that is not supportive of this new way of, of relating to each other. And I asked him, uh, his name is Aaron. I was like, Yo, Aaron, if, if, if you had the opportunity to start a new school from scratch, would you? And surprisingly, he said, no, he's like, I I think I'm actually becoming a school abolitionist. 
and that these institutions that work in silos and that aren't in deep relationship with every other element of community is just not functional. And so, you know, I wonder if something that comes from such a like a top-down level is ultimately what's going to serve communities. Like if there was to be one curriculum that the federal government selects that all schools had to go through, I actually don't know that that would be in service to all the communities on the ground. And so I, I feel like it would be in better service to our communities if we had an educational system that really allowed local communities to explore what they need because you know, and, and I have a lot of friends that do restorative justice work. I was just having coffee or chai with uh, a woman named Sujatha this morning who is a pioneer in restorative justice work. And, and she was talking about how, you know, every indigenous community, if they look back far enough, had practices of responding to harm in a way that heals relationships. And because of colonization, because of patriarchy, because of all these systems, they've a lot of them have lost access to those teachings and the, those ways of being. But if we just provide space for every community to go back far enough into their own lineage, we have these practices. Like, we know what it means to live in community with each other, right? And so can we create a, a system that allows empowerment from the ground up to, to look back into our own history to remember, you know, at the end of the day, to me, nonviolence is just about learning how to be in relationship with ourselves and, and relationship with each other again. And we all know how to do that. And so can we create a system where we can all just remember what that feels like and what that looks like oh my god so good so good kasu i know that you have talked about uh this concept about fierce vulnerability which i really really love and i think you'll do more justice explaining that, that i do but if it felt to me like it was like the the most essential vitamin that we need in this long process that you're talking of change can you talk a little more about it for me a lot of it is about taking this ancient lineage of nonviolence and adding to it some new sciences and technologies that have emerged since the time of Dr. Martin Luther King. Stuff around trauma healing, for example, just wasn't around during the civil rights movement. And so much of what I've learned in doing restorative justice and trauma healing work in the prisons, I think applies to social change work. And, you know, like I've seen so many forms of violence being perpetuated within social change movements. And it's all because like we all have traumas. Uh, one of the things that I really want to do is, is normalize trauma. Like people have trauma and it's not because you're broken. It's not because something is wrong with you. It's not because you're weak. Trauma is a natural human response to things that are unnatural. And poverty and capitalism and the levels of violence that we're witnessing today in our society, there is nothing normal about that. It's become so normalized, but there's nothing normal about the conditions that we're living in. And all of these things cause trauma in our bodies. And if we don't find ways to unpack that, then, you know, hurt people hurt people, right? If, if we have pain in our bodies that we haven't had an opportunity to process and, and, and release, then we're going to release that hurt onto ourselves or onto other people. And I just keep seeing these cycles happening within so-called social change movements. And so this, this kind of ethos of fierce vulnerability, it's become a workshop, a two-day workshop that, that, that we're experimenting with at East Point Peace Academy, um, is really about understanding that the, the healing work that we're doing in our own hearts and the healing work that we're doing with our families it's the, the same work, right? Like when we, when we go out into the external world and, and do political resistance work and social change work, we're doing the same thing just at different scales. And there's a, 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 a relationship between that work that, that is, yeah, that we can't ignore that our traumas are going to influence how we relate to each other within movements. And it's going to impact the, the type of change that we're going to be able to create. And part of the vulnerability that you're sharing with us is that we all have to normalize and accept that we have trauma. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you feel is, the, is, is so difficult that we don't do it already, either as a society or even in, in, in organizations of social change, where, where you would imagine that a lot of this could emerge from? Yeah, I think oftentimes trauma leads to shame. Right. And there was a study that was done a while ago, a survey that was taken that said that shame is the, the one thing that 
people least want to talk about. And one of the things that I've learned in doing some of this work that I've been doing in the prisons is giving space for people to talk about the things that they are most ashamed of is some of the most liberating work that I've ever been able to witness. There's a quote that says, shame derives its power from being unspoken. And like we we don't want to talk about shame. And so we don't talk about it. We repress it. We repress it. We repress it. And by repressing it, it just ends up taking control over our lives and over our relationships. And so I think we have to do a better job of creating spaces where people feel safe enough to talk about the things that they are most ashamed of and trust that that community is going to hold you through that and trust that you're not going to be isolated, that you're not going to be cast out of society. And I think in similar ways, as we kind of extrapolate that to social change work, there are things that this country should have deep shame around, right? Like we should be ashamed of what is going on at the border. We should be ashamed that the wealth of this nation is built on the backs of the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples. And as a country, we have never had that discussion, right? We've never had those conversations And so nationally, we have trauma around that. And because we've never talked about that trauma, because we've never talked about that shame, that shame continues to control this country. And it continues to control the ways we relate to each other within this country and internationally, globally. And so I I really look at movement work as, as trying to create, trying to force that dialogue, right? Trying to gain enough leverage so that this country is forced to have that dialogue, but doing it in a way that people feel safe enough to say, yes, we are ashamed of, of how we've built wealth in this nation and, and that we are going to be held through that conversation and that we are going to continue to be in relationship through that conversation so that we can heal together. Yeah. Caso, I love what you're saying because besides the work that is interpersonal or the work in families, when we're talking about the work that is public. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about First Vulnerability is that you're trying to really change the way direct action is being done as a way that is more generative of actually that dialogue versus not having it, which is kind of what we have more. Can you talk just a little bit more about what are your thoughts about direct action and how does fierce vulnerability play into that? We need to do things differently, right? Like a lot of the direct actions that people have gotten used to doing of shutting down highways and things like that. The state is used to it. Like in the Birmingham campaign during the civil rights movement, when they decided, okay, we're going to pack the jails, right? That was a revolutionary thing at that point in history. The state had no idea how to respond to that. And these days, I feel like a lot of the tactics that we're using, the state has has been dealing with for however many decades. And so I think part of fierce vulnerability is trying to do things radically different But it's not just doing things radically different from a tactical standpoint. One of the things that I think a lot about and we talk a lot about in the Fierce Vulnerability Workshop is that a lot of our direct action movements move with an energy of shut it down, right? Like we're here to shut things down. And I believe in the critical need for even more militant forms of nonviolent direct action than we're used to seeing. But I want to build a movement where even if tactically we're shutting down highways and occupying government buildings and whatever that might be, that we're still moving with the spirit of, of not shutting things down, but opening things up. Like, can we shut down a highway while opening up our hearts and opening up the possibility of healing and opening up the possibility of humanizing the other side and, and, and transformation and healing dialogues? And, you know, I don't know what that looks like, right? Fierce vulnerability is, it's, it's an experiment. One of the things that I've noticed over time is that the more we escalate our tactics of nonviolent direct action, the more we also tend to escalate this us versus them worldview. And that kind of black-white analysis, that binary way of thinking, to me, is one of the root causes of what continues to perpetuate harm in our society, is this like um, letting go of the idea of interdependence. And so I want to know what it looks like to escalate tactics while doubling down on our commitment to the dignity of all life and doubling down on the commitment to reconciliation and to healing. Right? There's a beautiful quote that I love that I've been repeating for a couple of years now since I heard it. 
Um, I heard that it comes from Maladoma Somme, even though I haven't been able to quite place the, the, the origins of it. And the quote is that um, conflict is the spirit of the relationship asking itself to deepen, right? That every time there's a conflict, there's actually an opportunity to deepen in relationship. And even though conflict is always going to be awkward and uncomfortable and, and, and it's very difficult to move through conflict without it creating some harm, how can we still engage with that conflict in a way that allows us to deepen in relationship? And I think the lunch counter sit-ins and the boycotts and everything that those activists in Nashville did caused some harm, right? I'm sure it was difficult for the white business owners and all these things. And yet they were still able to move through that in a way that left open the possibility of deepening a relationship by honoring the fact that, you know what, the victory isn't in us winning something over you. The victory is is only going to be real when the relationship has been deepened between the black and white communities in Nashville. What is your recommendation from your perspective around the preparation that it takes to the kind of work you're talking about that we all need to be engaged in? And there's an aspect of trauma healing work and forgiveness work that feels so deeply human hmm. that we all actually know how to do this. Like every cell in our body knows how to be in right relationship with each other. And I feel like if we can actually create the containers where people feel safe enough to get to the core of who they truly are, in some ways it's easier because we all already know how to do it. Right? Like in these restorative justice dialogues and, 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 and circles, like I'm not going in there to teach people anything. I'm not going in there to teach people how to forgive because it's not something that I can teach them. It's, it's, it's something that they need to remember how to do for themselves. And I think oftentimes when we talk about forgiveness work and I talk about, for example, the, the dialogue that's happened between mothers and the, and the men that have taken away their, their children, that's the equivalent of like bench pressing 500 pounds. If you haven't started by, you know, learning how to bench press 30 pounds and then 40 pounds and then 50 pounds, you're not going to be able to get to a place where you're bench pressing 500 pounds. And so I think oftentimes people hear stories like that. And the thing that they think is, okay, how can I forgive the person that have, that has hurt me the most in my life? Or how can I forgive the Donald Trumps of the world? And I think we need to start looking at the smaller weights, the, the lesser weights. Like what are the small practices that I can do consistently in my life that builds up my muscles of forgiveness, that builds up my muscles of nonviolence so that eventually I can get to a place where I'm able to do forgiveness around some of the greater harms. I love the metaphor. What are, besides silent meditation and other technologies, what do you think are some of those other preparations that you think are easier to get those muscles going, you know, even to start flexing them or doing stretches, you know? For me, meditation has been a really key practice. But one of the other things that I do for myself is I actually listen to a lot of conservative podcasts um, just as a way of trying to understand a different perspective and, and trying to develop empathy and understanding for like, you know, I don't have to agree with everything they say. I usually don't, but it's helpful to to be able to say, oh, I disagree with this perspective. I think it's wrong, but I can see how they got to that conclusion, mm. right? And 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 that mm. sort of helps to build empathy. And and I also just have the privilege of, of being able to do this work in prison and, and having conversations and hearing stories from people who have caused a great deal of harm and hearing their story. I think one of the most powerful lessons that I've gained in this work is that once you begin to understand someone's story, everything they do begins to make sense. And it doesn't condone what they do. It doesn't justify what they do, but it begins to make sense, right? And so taking time to understand people's stories and the stories of people that you have different political perspectives with, um, I think those kinds of practices are really key, especially in a time where things are so polarized and everything is black and white, and we're, we're losing our ability to see nuance, um, I think it's really important to try to at least learn to hear other perspectives without reacting right away to them. In most activist spaces that I'm in, people are fighting over political opinions, like it's World War III. I mean, people don't talk to each other anymore, you know? They disengage if people don't use the right words, you know? How do we have a dialogue among people? Because people are coming from different places. 
I, you know, I think one of the things like movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too it, it has has done is it has obviously empowered communities in a way that we couldn't imagine year, several years ago. But it has also for like in Black Lives Matter for Black communities and Me Too for for women, it has made their traumas more visible because now we're constantly talking about police killings, we're constantly talking about sexual violence. And I think that just the, the the presence of that trauma in news media makes it really difficult for people to really continue to breathe, right? When when our traumas are triggered, it makes it hard for us to just like take a deep breath. And I think naming that at the early on in the beginning of workshops and, and just saying like, look, we're all dealing with an incredibly challenging time in human history and we acknowledge that. Um, I think just allows people to breathe into it a little bit um, because I think every time we name what's happening, everyone in the workshop space is like they're nodding their heads like, yes, that is happening. And it is in so many ways manifesting in ways that are unhealthy in our activist spaces, in our movement spaces. And so I think just just naming and, and presencing it has been really helpful. I love that you're saying that uh, we bring a lot of indigenous elders to come from Latin America to come to the U.S. And it's kind of fascinating the opinions that they have when they see our culture, because it's literally like bringing an alien to another society, right? And and what they said to us is, is people, they are grieving, but they don't know that they have to grieve. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is just there's so much sadness because I yeah. think with more consciousness, all consciousness is vulnerability, it's being empath empathetic with the suffering of the world, with your own suffering. And that creates humongous amounts of grief about yeah. what the world could have been without colonialization, what my family could have been without X or Y Absolutely. and Z harm, you know? And there's so much grief that we haven't really done, you know, because we have to do grief and grief has to be done collectively. One of the things that we've been having this conversation in the Fierce Vulnerability Workshops too, because we do a lot of grief work there. All of us know, understand like in our bodies, that we have a lot of things that are hurting us and that we need to grieve. But because our society doesn't create a lot of spaces for us to, to do that work, we keep repressing it. And there's an incredible amount of spiritual energy that it takes to suppress that. And I was having a conversation recently with some people about, you know, if we were able to actually grieve together and if we were able to free up the energy that we're using to suppress that grief, how much creativity we could have in our lives, how much spaciousness we could have in our lives. And so I think that that sort of grief work is a critical component of social change. It has to be part of the work that we're doing. You know, I have a mentor called Don Jorge that he was the one that taught me the long view, this process of looking through history, like the structure of it is he makes the joke that we have to drink Pepto-Bismol to look through history because it affects our stomach so much to look at that much loss. That brings me to the thinking, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of the, in, on the native communities about how we have to become young elders, you know, and a lot of us, mm. because of colonialism or because of all the systems of oppressions, a lot of our elders, because they're just trying to survive, a lot of the young people are trying to lead the social change, you know? A lot of elders are leading, but there's a lot more young people that are leading on that way. Uh, tell me more about you, Cass, on how you relate to tradition and your commitment for a lifetime of social change, or, or however you call this work. The word lineage has become so much more meaningful to me since entering the Kingian world. Hmm. Because this is a, a lineage that comes from the civil rights movement, and, and specifically the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, the, the history of Kingian nonviolence is that uh, Dr. Lafayette, who, who taught me this stuff and who is the co-author of the curriculum, was in Dr. King's motel room in Memphis, Tennessee, the morning he was assassinated. And they were having a conversation about the Poor People's Campaign. And as Dr. Lafayette was leaving Dr. King's motel room, Dr. King called out to him. And he said, you know, Bernard, the next movement that we need to have is a movement to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence. And Dr. Lafayette says that he didn't quite understand what King meant, especially by institutionalizing nonviolence, but he just figured they'd finish the conversation the next time. And he left. And shortly after that, Dr. King was assassinated. And so they never got to finish that conversation. So Dr. Lafayette calls that 
the final marching orders of Dr. Martin Luther King, right? To figure out a way to institutionalize this knowledge. And so he spent years developing this curriculum that is now known as Kingian Nonviolence as a way to, to honor the final marching orders of Dr. Martin Luther King. And so to have this sense that I'm helping to fulfill the last thing that Dr. King ever asked one of his top organizers to do is an incredibly humbling thing, right? And and in the Kingian lineage, there's also a famous story that Coretta Scott King gave Dr. Lafayette the explicit right to call this curriculum Kingian nonviolence when he made the promise to her that everyone who teaches Kingian nonviolence will have deeply studied this lineage and will really know what they're talking about. And even understanding that this dates back way further than Dr. Martin Luther King, that this is the work of the historical Buddha and Jesus and all these people that have always been trying to figure out how to be in right relationship with each other. Um, it's deeply humbling, and it's also like a, a big burden lifted off my shoulder to know that it's actually not all on me and it's not all on my generation alone, that we're standing on the shoulders of countless generations that came before us. And we can rely on the countless generations that are going to come after us, right? So, Kasu, my brother, I know that uh, you've written a book. I wanted you to just maybe spend a little bit of time just telling people about the purpose of the book, why you wrote the book, and what you hope to communicate with it. Yeah, the, the book kind of loosely follows the, the training curriculum of Kingian nonviolence. And the title, Healing Resistance, is, is really about that. It's, it's, it's about trying to contribute to building a movement that is resisting all of the, the, the forms of violence and the injustices of the world, but doing it in a way that is actually healing. Um, like I was saying earlier, if, if we're not working on healing our traumas and the traumas of, of, of our country and the traumas of the world and healing relationships, then I don't know what it is that we're actually trying to do. And so it's talking about the, the some of the core teachings of Kingian nonviolence told through the stories of my life and told through the stories of my experiences in social change movements and some of the work that we've been doing in the prisons and talking about what nonviolence actually means and what it doesn't mean and trying to dispel some of those myths and trying to move nonviolence into the 21st century and continuing to add to this ancient lineage. I'm already waiting for the second book, hopefully maybe around fierce vulnerability, because I, I would love to see what comes up from this experiments that you're running, you know, uh, on this thing. So Already in the works. Oh, oh, oh okay. Maybe, maybe to Stay be tuned. in this podcast. Stay tuned. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, my brother. Thank you so much. Well, sending blessings and thank you, Kate, and thank you to everyone else that is working on this podcast very hard to... Keep telling a lot of the stories that I think a mass audience needs to hear around a lot of these topics that sometimes we're privileged enough in activist circles to hear only ourselves about some of this information. So I hope this can make it to the right ears or the right hands or the right people across the world. So thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Enormous gratitude to Carlos Saavedra and Kazuaga for joining us here on the podcast and sharing that conversation. We learned so much from listening in with you. Kazu's practice, which is a meta meditation, will follow in next week's episode. So make sure that you follow or subscribe in whatever podcast listening platform you're listening so that you don't miss it. And leave us a positive rating and review in whichever app you're in. Uh, that really helps us out to continue offering this work and to help it to spread. You can check out our vast library of conversations and practices for collective healing and social change on our website, which includes our full catalog from our previous name, Healing Justice Podcast. While you're there, you can join our email list to stay in the know, access transcripts, and accessibility information. It's all at irresistible.org slash podcast. We are offering interactive virtual space for the first time really in our community history um, called Care Circles. They're happening through at least the end of April. And so if you're looking for a place to process and feel and be in good community, um, you can learn more and join one at irresistible.org slash circle. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram at irresistible underscore movements, and Twitter at Hey Irresistible, where we're sharing all this season about our sources and journey in becoming irresistible. 
Thank you to Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for audio production, Jacob White for content editing this conversation, and Allison Thompson for digital and social media work. Irresistible Podcast is supported by the Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more at calliopeia.org. Sending love. Hear you next week.